Unlock your Bible. Discover the true meaning of life. Learn the cause of world problems and the astounding solution. Prove for yourself what the future holds. In the Trumpet Literature Library, you will find answers to life's most important questions. Explore these vital titles on Trumpet Bookshelf. Welcome to Trumpet Bookshelf. I'm Grant Turgeon. We're broadcasting to you today from the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus here in Edmond, Oklahoma. This is KPCG Radio, and you can find us online at kpcg.fm. They were violently persecuted because they obeyed the Bible. But that is not the end of this story. When Jesus Christ returns, these people of God will be rewarded for what they did. One of the greatest rewards given throughout all eternity. At the end of this spiritual war, God's obedient people win. This is a quote from Philadelphia Church of God, Pastor General Gerald Flurry, in chapter six of his book, The True History of God's True Church. You can Study this book, get yourself a free copy at thetrumpet.com. In this quote, Mr. Flurry is talking about the third of seven prophesied church eras in Revelation chapters two and three. Last week, we talked about the Smyrna era, the second era. Before that, we talked about the first era, Ephesus. And now we're on to the third era, Pergamos. Revelation chapter 2 has a rather lengthy passage about Pergamos, and we'll just go through this and stop to explain along the way. Revelation 2 verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he which has the sharp sword with two edges. You can look at Hebrews 4 verse 12 to see that the two-edged sword is talking about the word of God, what the Bible says. God's true church for the last two millennia has known truth of the Bible that no one else understands. They can prove what they believe directly from the Bible. And here Jesus Christ is admonishing the Pergamus brethren to return to what the Bible says. You'll see that here in just a moment. Verse 13 of Revelation chapter 2. I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name and have not denied my faith. So here it's talking about Satan's seat. And in fact, the first century city of Pergamos was the seat of the Roman government in Turkey. The province of Turkey back then, the same area as the nation of Turkey today. As Mr. Flurry writes, this city of Pergamos in the first century was also the home of a large college for the Chaldean mystery religion. This region here was right at the heart of Nimrod's religion, 
Nimrod was the man who, after the great flood of the book of Genesis, led the way in rebellion against God all over again. So God sent the flood because the the earth was just full of filthy sins. And then Nimrod thought, well, let's just go ahead and and keep right on living the very exact same way that just got mankind wiped out. Nimrod's religion found fertile ground in this area, this province of Turkey where the city of Pergamos was. Mr. Flurry writes, this area had been a stronghold of Satan's for millennia. The city of Pergamos was the literal seat of Satan's government and religion. Mr. Flurry has a lot of excellent sources in this chapter as well. Again, chapter six of the true history of God's true church, a book available to you for free at thetrumpet.com. He explains how this was a wealthy city with pagan cults worshiping Roman false gods. Pergamus had a university with a library of about 200,000 volumes, and it was known for manufacturing parchment or paper. This Bible knowledge commentary Mr. Flurry quotes from says, the atmosphere of this city was, av- was adverse to any effective Christian life and testimony. Doesn't that make sense for a place called by Christ himself, Satan's seat, an area totally adverse to Christian life and testimony. This was a church of God surrounded by paganism and false religion. And they were in quite a bit of danger as we will soon look into. All right, continuing in verse 13. Christ here is saying that the true Christians are holding fast his name and not denying the faith. And then verse 13 at the end here. And even or even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells. So this is a pretty fascinating verse. The Bible repeatedly names names, gives prophetic figures to which we must attach specific identities. Antipas Antipas here in Revelation 2 verse 13 is a prophesied leader of the Pergamos era of God's church. And so we have to be able to find him in history not necessarily by that exact name, but Antipas does translate to anti-papal. So anti-father in terms of the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Anti-Catholic Church authority. This is 
a very strong indication of the identity of God's one true church, particularly from the 8th century AD for several hundred years after that. The Pergamus church era era was strongly anti-papal. Here in the true history of God's true church, Mr. Flurry gives a specific identity of Antipas. Page 112, Constantine of Mananali. He began preaching around AD 650. And basically, he received someone into his home who had been held captive in Syria. And this person was returning to the region of Armenia. This captive had obtained a manuscript of the new Testament. He shared this manuscript with Constantine of Mananali and the, and then Constantine's life was changed by this study of the new Testament. Mr. Flurry writes on page 112, Constantine taught the basic tenets of commandment observance. He taught that the Sabbath must be observed. His enemies went on record that he taught specifically against papal authority. Constantine spread the word about these biblically inspired doctrines. Mr. Flurry points out in this chapter how the Pergamus church era was horrifically persecuted. We talked on the last show about Constantine in the 4th century AD and how he aligned with the Catholic Church to increase his power. He held these councils where basically he used the authority of the Roman Empire to establish religious doctrine. He upheld the Trinity. He upheld Easter instead of Passover. These false doctrines that perfectly align with the false church established by Simon Magus in 33 AD to be a counterfeit for the one true church of God. So Constantine did persecute true Christians and false Christians, really anyone who disagreed with the Catholic church. There were some conflicts at the time between church leaders and leaders of the Catholic church. For example, Polycarp was burned alive, but for the most part, Constantine would exile the so-called heretics, including true Christians. He'd exile them. It wasn't full on burning and slaughter. That's what the last episode was called. Certainly they got a taste of burning and slaughter, but if you can believe it, it got a whole lot worse. AD 554, Justinian revived the Roman Empire and made the holy made it the holy Roman Empire 
by aligning the empire with this great false church. And this is when persecution of God's one true church really ramped up. Constantine laid the groundwork for that false church, but it got really serious about persecuting true Christians under Justinian and onward. There is a really detailed description here in the true history of God's true church and in other booklets that we have available to you for free at the trumpet.com, like who or what is the prophetic beast, uh, the Holy Roman empire and prophecy. They'll explain these prophecies very clearly in the books of Daniel and revelation and how this political religious empire was a wounded beast that was revived. The, the barbarians overran Rome, but then Justinian took control back. He made the empire Roman again. And then he made the empire religious again. It was called the Imperial Restoration, and it marked really a period of red alert for true Christians. So this is where Constantine of Mananali comes on the scene about a hundred years after Justinian set up the Holy Roman Empire, gave the Catholic Church more power than it ever had before. Constantine read the New Testament and his life was changed. But remember, during this time of severe persecution against true Christians, everyone who chose to follow God, who chose to wield the two-edged sword of God's word, had to know they were at extreme risk. They were taking a deadly risk to follow God. Constantine knew this. And he soon paid with his life. His ministry lasted from about 650 to 684 AD. And, well, it ended violently. The Roman, Empire, the Roman emperor actually sent a warrior named Simeon to crush the Pergamus church. Simeon captured a number of Constantine's followers and he told them stone your leader to death. You either stone Constantine or you will die. As Mr. Flurry says, at least one of his followers weakened and stoned him. Like we talked about last week, we do have to try to imagine what it would be like in a situation like that or or in this in the case of Polycarp being walked to the stake to be tied up and then burned alive how would you respond would you cave in at the last second in a desperate attempt to save your physical life what if constantine just before being stoned had decided to announce to renounce everything he had preached for about 34 years 
Maybe he could have saved his life physically. But men of faith like him throughout history have always understood that physical life is nothing compared to spiritual life. Life everlasting in the kingdom of God. He was willing to die if it meant a much greater life for all eternity. What an inspiring example. This example actually converted the very warrior who put him to death. Simeon was moved by Constantine's faith. Mr. Flurry writes here on page 113, similar to the apostle Paul, Simeon embraced the faith that he was supposed to stamp out. Remember, Paul was Saul. He was an avid, highly effective persecutor of Christians until God struck him blind. He was humbled. He became Paul. He received his sight again, and he eventually was the chief apostle of God's one true church. Your Bible has 14 books in it written by Paul. His life dramatically changed because of this two-edged sword. God's word cut him to the heart and inspired him to make real, lasting, beneficial change. So Simeon renounced his former life. He expected maybe Constantine of Mananali would renounce his preaching, but instead he renounced his former life. He took on the name of Titus and he became a leading minister of the Paulicians. That that was the name that historians give to true church members at this time. Simeon only preached from 684 to 687, though, because he, in turn, was also martyred by Justinian II. There was a man named Paul the Armenian after that, and then Gagnesius, his son, around 702, became a leading minister, and he led the church from 717 to 745. And then another man, Sergius, from 801 to 835. By the time Sergius came around, the Pergamus church was starting to weaken. They were starting to compromise. And so Sergius traveled constantly to preach the truth and to remind them that they had to wield the two-edged sword. They had to let the Bible determine how they live their lives. Mr. Flurry writes, God provided a strong succession of leaders for this time period in this region. This was the church of God in the dark ages, forced underground, forced to flee and hide for 1,260 years 
554 to 1814 AD. You can find this explained in much more detail here in this book, The True History of God's True Church. This really is a book of church legends. Just so deeply inspiring to study this material, to learn about those who went before us and were mighty spiritual warriors in the faith. All right, here we get into this emergence of compromise within the Pergamus era, as I just alluded to. Revelation 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Verse 15, so have you also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So there's these two major false doctrines strangling God's one true church at this time. We're coming up on the turn of the century getting up toward 1000 AD and compromise is starting to take over the church. How could this happen? Well, just think again, if it were your choice and you knew that choosing to follow God was a very risky choice. It is certainly human nature to just maybe try to save yourself physically. Maybe try to get away from this false church that's always on the attack. Maybe you just don't want to feel different anymore. You don't want to stick out or seem weird. Here on page 122, Mr. Flurry says, tired of the persecution, they reasoned that they could somehow look Catholic on the outside, but be true Christians on the inside. To avoid trouble, many feigned conformity with the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. They believed they would be safe because in their hearts they knew better. Many had their infant children baptized. They attended Sabbath services and then went to Sunday Mass. Few realized that the highway of compromise always leads to disaster. So, they started turning away from true doctrines of God to false doctrines and said, well, we're not deeply convinced of these false doctrines. We're just pretending so that they don't kill us. Now, again, that is a very easy route to understand. The path of least resistance, the way to 
skirt persecution. And the way that God's church always stands out is because it does wield the two-edged sword. It's a sword that does cut to the heart, like I mentioned. It does stir us to change. God's word does give us very helpful correction so that we can live a more abundant, fulfilling life. But that sword can also cut people who are hostile to what God has to say. Many can perhaps become offended, wrongly offended, but still offended by what the Bible actually says. The Pergamus Brethren had this document called the Key of Truth. Page 114 lays this out. This Key of Truth outlined a lot of their doctrines. Again, they were anti-papal. They were anti-Catholic church. So look at some of these doctrines. They did not baptize children, only adults. They cited Christ's life as an example. He was 30 years old when he was baptized. They baptized by immersion. In other words, they did not just sprinkle water on the forehead. The whole body went underwater during baptism. They believed that true repentance was a prerequisite for baptism. They believed that the church was a body of people, not a building. They believed a true Christian is one who knows Christ and keeps the Ten Commandments. They believed that although Christ was crucified for man, he did not command adoration of the cross. They did not believe that Mary, Jesus' mother, remained a virgin all her life. They did not consider Mary to be a female mediator. A mediator being a go-between for us and God when we pray. They rejected the Catholic Mass communion and confession. Wow, just bold defiance of the great false church. These doctrines are always going to make God's one true church stand out. Sometimes for persecution, making God's loyal people an easy target. As Mr. Flurry shows on page 115, though, the Pergamus brethren were also viciously slandered. They were accused of rejecting the apostle Peter, the true chief apostle of the true church of God, just because they actually rejected Simon Magus, who was over time mistaken by most people for being the apostle Peter. Acts 8 shows that the Apostle Peter and Simon Magus had an epic clash when Simon tried to to buy the power of God's Holy Spirit. Peter strongly rebuked him. They were not the same person. 
they led rival churches. So just because the Pergamus brethren rejected Simon Magus does, does not mean they rejected Peter. That's exactly the opposite of the truth. Now, the Pergamus brethren were also called a Judaizing religion. We talked about that a little bit last week as well, how the truth that Jesus Christ taught and upheld has been conflated over the centuries with the Jewish religion. Yet, if you really think about it, what did Christ do when he was on earth? Didn't he constantly have to correct the Jews? Didn't he have to show them where they were off track with their beliefs? God's true church is not a Jewish church. It's also not a Christian church in the sense that the world views it. It is a true Christian church. But again, traditional Christians out there would think of God's true church as maybe Jewish. And then the Jews would think of God's true church as just another one of those churches like the rest of the Christian ones out there. God's true church is in a category all its own. And it's the only one that is right. So back here to Revelation 2 verses 14 and 15, where Christ specifically corrects the Pergamus era for these two false doctrines, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of Balaam comes from this pagan priest like Simon Magus from Mesopotamia. And the book of Numbers chapters 22 through 24 shows that Balaam cursed Israel. He showed a pagan king how to entice the Israelites into sin. Basically what he did was he told Balak, the king of Moab, just just dangle these sins of idolatry and whoredom in front of the Israelites, and they'll go for it. They'll be drawn away from God. And then you won't have to worry about them. They won't be a threat to you. God won't help them if they are getting into idolatry and whoredom. So on the council of Balaam, this pagan minister, the Moabites enticed the Israelites. Gross sexual immorality with the Moabite women. You can see this on page 118 of the True History of God's True Church. They got into idolatry, worshiping Baal, and, and over the years, that also included sacrificing animals to this, these false idols, sacrificing their own children to these false idols. 
just a sick, reprehensible form of pagan religion. Baal worship. So, some of the people in the Pergamus church started to go along with essentially Baal worship, the doctrine of Balaam. Page 119 says, by the time of the Pergamus era, the Babylonian mystery religion had taken firm root in the false churches in the West. The church at Rome held authority over all the, all the churches except those hidden in Armenia. So the true church. Easter had been substituted for the Passover, Sunday worship for Sabbath keeping. The celebration of Christmas was introduced into the Western church in the fourth century. The church at Rome had also gained considerable political power. It skillfully used this power to enforce its religious traditions to resist the church at Rome often brought death. So the doctrine of Balaam and then the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is very similar as well. This was a belief system that said essentially that you could be religious while also being promiscuous. Is that not a very common belief today? People who are pretty obviously Christian in name only, and yet in the way they live are completely indistinguishable from everybody else. It's just a lifestyle of hypocrisy, especially against uh, the seventh commandment that forbids adultery. It outlaws fornication, and yet that is this doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, this Bishop Nicholas, after whom this doctrine is named, was either a heretic associate of Simon Magus, or he was Simon Magus himself. And Simon Magus, as we know, was either demon-possessed, Satan-possessed, or just strongly, strongly influenced by Satan. So this is a satanic false belief as well. Mr. Armstrong uh, wrote that, or this is the Ambassador College Bible Correspondence Course under the late educator and theologian Herbert W. Armstrong, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, too, was one of no law, unrestrained indulgence, promiscuity. Their doctrine and the doctrine of Balaam sprang from the same source. In fact, as we have already noted, the name Nicolaitans might well be translated Balaamites and vice versa for both, Baal, for both Balaam in the days of Moses and Simon Magus in the first century AD occupied the office of Nimrod. So this... Babylonian mystery religion that really did start very soon after the flood with Nimrod. And it continued down through the ages for thousands of years. Simon Magus, Balaam. These were just two more followers of Nimrod and this false religion, this Babylonian mystery religion. And we know that the Catholic church has often taken pagan practices and assimilated those into their teachings and their way of life.
to appeal to more people and gain more converts. These are two pretty similar doctrines, of course, Balaam and the Nicolaitans. But the Balaam doctrine was an older one, again, stemming back to essentially Nimrod. The Nicolaitans doctrine was maybe a more recent version of false religion, as Mr. Fleury shows on page 121. It was a fusion of paganism and Christianity. Pagan practices and traditions labeled with Christian-sounding names. That is an extremely deceptive counterfeit of God's one true church and his one true belief system. Going back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. Repent or else I will come unto you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So here's another sword. They have to choose. The Pergamus church era had to choose between wielding the two-edged sword of God's word, obeying the word of God, letting God's truth guide their lives, or Christ would chase them with a literal sword. They would be persecuted and scattered and slaughtered even more. Sadly, the vast majority of what were called the Paulicians did choose the latter. They did choose the physical sword to be persecuted more instead of being protected for obedience. Some also chose to take up the literal sword to become warriors themselves. As page 123 of the true history of God's true church shows. Only a few Pergamus brethren remained faithful. They migrated west in the Balkan area. area the Paulicians evangelized and the people they converted became known as the Bogomils, meaning the friends, the friends of God. The Encyclopedia Britannica says the Bogomils were without doubt the connecting link between the so-called heretical sects of the East and those of the West. The world, the false church, call these people heretical. But the Paulicians, the few loyal ones, the Bogomils, they were part of this third church era, this Pergamus church era. And as they continued migrating west into northern Italy and southern France, they set up for the transition into another church era. So this era isn't really defined by one main leader. They had a number of leaders over hundreds of years from about 650 until the turn of the millennia, uh, 1000 AD. They had a number of leaders, but they were in that Armenian region, the eastern edge of the Roman Empire, until finally they had to flee. Verse 17 of Revelation chapter 2. 
He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. So this is talking about manna. This is a symbol of new revelation, spiritual truth, raining down from heaven upon these loyal Pergamus brethren, these Paulicians and Bogomils. They were going to have a white stone, which is talking about receiving forgiveness for their sins, being absolved of their sins because they repented. This white stone, this pure white stone, they would be protected if they chose to wield the two-edged sword. But sadly, the vast majority didn't do that. So around the turn, the turn of the millennia, I think I might have said turn of the century a while ago in this show, around the turn of the millennia, 1000 AD, in southern France and northern Italy, God's true church was ready to transition into the fourth church era. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Trumpet Bookshelf. You've been listening to Trumpet Bookshelf. Please email your thoughts to comments at kpcg.fm. Listen for new episodes every Friday at 10 a.m. Central Time.